If you had the opportunity to prevent Moshe Rabbeinu from passing away, would you take it? Well, apparently the nation who lived at that time believed that they could stop Moshe Rabbeinu from passing away. And that's why the Torah says, In the middle of the day, Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu to go out to Haruhavorim to prepare to pass away. And Rashi says, We have that expression twice before. It's in the time of Noach, where the people there thought they could prevent him from getting onto the ark and escaping. And maybe that way they could prevent the flood. And likewise, the Mitzrayim thought that they could pre- prevent the Jews from leaving Mitzrayim. In both cases, it says, because Hashem's attitude is, try whatever you can. You cannot stop me from doing this. Now, of course, it is interesting to us. Why would the Jews believe that they could go against what Hashem wants? They're not the Doha Mabel and they're not the people of Egypt who would rebel against Hashem. So what were they thinking? The Rebbe will see in Rashi a very interesting explanation because Rashi says, look at all the good things that Moshe did for us. We're not going to let him go. In other words, their position was a position of Hakor HaSatoyv, that we have to show gratitude to Moshe for everything that he did for us, and that's why we have to somehow interfere. And the way that they would interfere, well, that is alluded to by the story of the Mabul and the story of Mitzrayim. At the end of Parshas Hazinu, it says, Hashem said to Moshe in the middle of the day, saying, Go up to Har Nevoi, and that's where you're going to pass away. Sarashi then quotes as his headline the whole phrase. And Hashem spoke to Moshe in the middle of that day. Or Pirish and Rashi explains as follows. There are three occasions within Torah where this phrase is used. In the middle of the day. Or maybe Rashi quotes the other two. At this point, we're going to just briefly go through um, what the different stages or messages of those two stories were. And a little bit later, Nasikha will flesh them out more in, in detail. So, with the story of Noach, it says that he entered the Teva in the middle of the day. Why in the middle of the day? So, what happened was the people at the time said, if we see Noach going, we swear that we'll come with hatchets and axes and we'll stop him going in to the Teva. Rashi gives more detail. We find a similar thing with the Egyptians. The Mitzrim also said, we swear if we get the sense that the Jews are trying to leave, we're not going to let them go. We're also going to take our weapons and in both cases, in both cases, Hashem's response to them was, I'm going to take them out in the middle of the day, broad daylight. Anybody who has the power to deter me from doing so, go ahead and try to interfere. Says Rashi Afkan, Along the same lines, here when it talks about the description of Moshe's passing, it says it happened in the middle of the day, broad daylight. Because the Jews also had a complaint. And they said, We're not going to let Moshe go. Rashi quotes various good things that Moshe had done for the Jewish people, which the Yidden quoted at that point in time. 
Amar Hakadosh Baruch Hu. In a similar vein, Hashem responds, "Harenim machnisoi b'chatzi hayoyim echulei." I am going to take Moshe in broad daylight, and there's nothing that you could do about it. So the first question we have to ask is, why does Rashi feel he has to comment at all? Is it not a straightforward story? It was the day that Moshe was going to pass away. So what we'll see is, we already know that it is this day, because already from Pashas Vayelech, that was the theme. So Rashi says there seems to be a repetition over here. It's pretty self-explanatory why Rashi has to comment on the words because because at first glance it would appear that these are unnecessary words, superfluous words. Because already when this theme began in Pashas Vayelech, then Moshe Rabbeinu said, He said, I'm 120 today. And Rashi already pointed out that that was going to be the day that he would pass away. That is the day Moshe passed away. So then it's just logical that everything that is described from Pashas Vayelach until this point all happened on that day. So if what the Torah wanted to tell us is that all of these events occurred on that day, no surprise, we know this already. So Be'etzim Ayom in this parasha sounds like unnecessary language. So it can't be unnecessary, it can't be superfluous. Therefore Rashi has to explain. So therefore Rashi says, Be'etzim Ayom is a specific word choice, which is there to allude to the fact, to the fact that the Jews did not want to let Moshe go. And in response to their hesitation and their almost interference, that's where Hashem says, look, midday, broad daylight, you're not going to be able to stop it. So that we get. We understand why Rashi feels compelled to explain these words. The question we're going to ask is on the explanation. We have to understand two core elements of this. First of all, are we comparing like groups of people? Let's say, what was going through the minds of the people at the Dor HaMabel? They thought they could prevent Noyach from entering the Teva. Well, theoretically, they could have. It was possible. Likewise, you can understand the thinking of the Egyptians, who were the mightier and larger group of people. They theoretically could have imagined how they could prevent the Jews from leaving Mitzrayim. But what logic would there have been for the Jews to think that they could stop Moshe passing away? Nobody can ever stop a person passing away. That's outside of the scope of human capacity. So how's Rashi comparing the two stories? Also, Also, if Rashi wants to illustrate us that is Hashem's way of saying, look, you cannot stop this process from happening, even if it's in broad daylight, you won't be able to stop me. Why do we need to know that it's recorded three times in Torah? Especially if you consider that Rashi goes into so much detail about all of the places outside of our current conversation. Rashi 
Surely Rashi's intention always is to explain the simple understanding of what he comments on, i.e. our Pasuk. So explain our Pasuk, what Be'etzim Ayom Azeh means here, which is, Just tell us straight, the Jews wanted to stop Moshe leaving, and Hashem said to them, that's impossible. Why do I have to know that it had already occurred with Noyach and with Mitzrayim? Especially when you consider how did Rashi address this issue when he discussed it back in Pashas Noyach. There he said very simply, at that time, in that story, the people thought they could prevent Noach from getting onto the Teva, and Hashem told them, there's no way you'll stop me. And Rashi didn't feel the need to bring any supporting proof from any other stories. So why now does he feel that it's not clear enough and he has to quote the other stories in, in a sense to validate his commentary over here? Why? In fact, if you actually think about it, logically, Dafka here, he shouldn't need to bring the other examples. Think about it logically. If the first time Rashi presents a particular perspective, he doesn't feel the need to prove it, then surely by the time we see the same perspective now present for the third time, surely now you definitely don't need to prove it. So it seems upside down. The first time Rashi told us this line of thinking in Pashas Noach, he didn't feel that he needed to prop up that commentary. And now when he's telling us it's the third occasion in Torah, now he says, and I'll prove it from these other places. Why? Not only that, just to take this question deeper, <laughs> Look at that. In Parashas Boy, when the hidden left Mitzrayim and it says that they left Be'etam Ayom in broad daylight, Rashi doesn't say a word. <laughs> and if Rashi doesn't say a word, you know what that means. It means that he knows, that you know, that he's already explained this concept. The simplest reason why Rashi would not have explained it in Pasha's boy is because he knows that he's already told it to us in Pasha's Noyach. If that's the case, So now why here does he again feel the need to explain it to us again? In Pasha's boy, you were happy to rely on what you had said in Pasha's Noyach. Why now do you have to explain it and bring examples and all the detail? So the only way to explain it must be, whether you like it or not, we have to explain. Must be because the normal way that Rashi has previously explained doesn't fit so smoothly in our Pasha. And therefore, Rashi has to say, look, I know it doesn't necessarily fit so neatly, and it's not the first way you would have explained the Pasuk, but because we have precedent, in fact, a double precedent, that this is how you're supposed to understand these Psukim, that's how I can explain it here too, to mean the same kind of thing. That's why Rashi is so precise in his language. That after he quotes the examples of with Noach and with the Egyptians, then he says, Likewise here. 
The Loike Sifri Makor Pirshashizeh, which is in- interestingly unlike his original source, the Sifri, Sheshom Nakat Kibbutzis Mitraim, Omaro Loimakan Chule. The Sifri says, Why does it say Betam Hayom Azeh over here? But Rashi says, Dafka Afkan, Shabbosheh Hitgish Rashi, the Dafka Lachesha Matsin, Shakeno Apirish Gabinoch Mitraim, Azeh Afkan, Azai Afkan Yeshlaporishke. So he's basically saying that only once I know how it is, in the context of the other sources, now I know that here too it's got to be the same explanation. means that there was some interference or attempted interference to which Hashem responds, you're not going to be able to stop the plan from going ahead. Okay, once we, so what are our core questions? Number one, are we really dealing with similar scenarios? Number two, why does Rashi have to explain something he's already explained before? In addition to that, there are seven nuanced elements of Rashi that we have to analyze. So we're going to look at various things in Rashi's language usage that we have to understand. We understand, of course, that when Rashi was commenting on the attempt by the Dor HaMabal to stop Noach getting into the Teva, or the attempt by the Mitzrim to stop the Jews leaving, he doesn't have to tell us why they wanted to do it. We get it. They didn't want a flood. They didn't want the Jews to leave. Bilukan Legabe Moshe, whereas over here, in the context of the Jews wanting to prevent Moshe's passing, we understand here why Rashi has to motivate why the Jews wanted Moshe to stay because of all the good things that he had done for them. So, surely you don't need to explain to us why the Jews don't want Moshe to pass away. Why do you have to justify why they want Moshe? This is Moshe Rabbeinu. If you had the chance to stop Moshe passing away, wouldn't you take it? So why does Rashi have to motivate for it? Question two. How come it is that when he talks about the people of Noach's time or the Mitzrim, he doesn't just say, we don't want Noach in the Teva or the Jews to leave, but he adds further detail, which apparently is irrelevant to our conversation. When he discusses the example of Noach, he says, not only did they say they would prevent it, but they would take hatchet and axes to go chop and break down the, the Teva. Why do I know, need to know that information right now? And how come by the Mitzvah, he says, we're going to take swords and weaponry to attack them and kill them, why does Rashi feel it's so important to say not only will they prevent Noach getting onto the Teva or prevent the Jews leaving Mitzrayim, but they will remove the possibility for Noach to get on the Teva because there will be no Teva or remove the possibility of Jews leaving Mitzrayim because there will be, God forbid, no Jews. Why is that information relevant over here? Question three. And while we're on that subject, talking about what their plan was to destroy the, the Teva or to stop the Jews leaving, why does each one have to have two examples? He mentions two details, both with regards to Noach and Mitzrayim. When he's talking about the Duramabal, he says that they came with Aleph Keshilin, Beis Vekardumois, small hatchets and big axes. 
And the Gabi Mitzrayim, they're going to come with siyofos uchlei zayin, with swords and with weaponry generally. Why do I need both of those details? How are they relevant to our understanding the story of Moshe Rabbeinu? Question four, David. When Rashi speaks about how things played out with Noach or with the Jews in Egypt, he tells us the whole story. That Hashem said to them, Whoever thinks that they have the power to interfere, let them come and try to interfere. Whereas in our current story, he says, Moshe, the Yidden don't want Moshe to go. So Hashem says, I'm going to take him in broad daylight, etc. He doesn't say, let whoever wants to try and interfere, come and try and interfere. Why not say it here? Surely the fact that Rashi repeated the same information when he described the story of Mitzrayim and did not rely on the fact that we had already heard this information or this process at the time of Noach's story. Why doesn't he do it a third time over here and he just relies on it, etc.? There's an inconsistency over here. Whichever way you look at it, it makes no sense. Either Rashi could have said for both scenarios and relied on Noyach that we know Hashem is saying, if you want to interfere, try your luck. Or if you feel that you have to spell it out in the case of Mitzrayim, then surely you have to spell it out again in the case of Moshe Rabbeinu. Question five. Hey, Part of the conversation in Rashi's version is that the Jews said, the person who did X, Y, Z, all these things for us, all this goodness for us, he's going to pass away. So now let's analyze what exactly were the examples that Rashi brought and ask ourselves, why those examples? Why are these the examples that Rashi used of the goodness Moshe did for the Eden? What are they? Took us out of Egypt. Split the sea. Gave us the mon to eat. And the slav, the meat that they ate in the desert. And brought up the water of the well. And gave us there were many, many other great things that Moshe did for them during the course of 40 years in the desert. Why are these dafka the ones on the list according to Rashi? For example, the fact that right as they got across from the Kriyas Yamsuf and they needed to drink water before the Be'er, he sweetened the water of Mora, which was bitter. Surely that's a good thing he did for them. Or more recently, we conquered the lands of Sichon Va'oik, which were being incorporated into the broader Eretz Yisrael. And many other examples. Why are these the examples that are used? Which leads us <coughs> to question six. Remember that Rashi bases his Pirish on the Sifri. You know what the Sifri says? Is the goodness that Moshe did? It says, that he did many miracles and many great things for us. Why does Rashi leave that out? He just gives the individual examples and then leaves out this broad message of all the greatness is done. Just to explain it a little more clearly, even though Rashi does base his commentary on Sifri, 
Because we know that Rashi always tries to explain things according to the Pshat, and we see over here that Rashi deliberately omits to say that his source is the Sifri. So therefore you have to say that Then you have to conclude that the specific examples Rashi has used are all directly relevant to understanding the Pshat, and the Nisim or Gvura is that the Sifri speaks about, not necessarily so. So now we really have to understand why are these the examples that are specifically linked to the Pshat. And final question, Zayin. Look at what Rashi is discussing. He is dis- discussing the meaning of the phrase, Be'etzem hayoyim hazeh. Usually Rashi only includes in his headline the words that he intends to explain. So why then did Rashi include in his headline here also the words, which he doesn't appear to explain? So in order to answer this question, there is an obvious distinction between the interaction between Hashem and the Jews with regards to Moshe's passing, which cannot be compared really to the people of the Mabel or the Mitzrayim. The most glaring difference is that the people at the time of the Mabel or the Mitzrayim were wicked individuals who wanted to go against what Hashem wants. That's why they wanted to prevent either Noach getting into the Teva or the Jews leaving Mitzrayim, because that's what Hashem wanted. That's what they didn't want. They were rebels. But we're talking here about the Jews. Doesn't that, you cannot make that kind of comparison to the audience we're, to, we're describing over here. How can you suggest that the Jews wanted to rebel against Hashem and do opposite to what he wanted? Before you get carried away, we're not here talking about the Dor Hamidbar. They rebelled against Hashem multiple times, but they've now all passed away. We're talking now about the generation that enters Eretz Yisrael, Shalem Nemer, which Moshe had said regarding them, they're completely bound with Hashem. It's very difficult to imagine that they now, because the subject is Moshe's passing, would now rebel against Hashem and try and interfere with something that Hashem wants. So that's why it doesn't gel so clearly how we're comparing this to the others. That's why, if not for the fact that this is now the third occasion in Torah where the phrase is used, without that information, we would never have thought to interpret this pasuk this way, because we would never have thought that the Jews are trying to go against Hashem's words. We would never have thought that is a response from Hashem to a um, dissident opinion. But because we have precedent, and this is now the third time the Torah is using this phrase, and now we know from the other two occasions that that has to be the explanation of with regards to Noach and with regards to Mitzrayim, and there's no question about it. 
So now, looking at the words, we therefore have to conclude that that's the explanation here too. Which raises a huge question. What are the Jews thinking at this point? How do they imagine that they could disagree with Hashem's plan, as painful as it was for them? How do they think that they even have a, the chutzpah to say anything? How could the Jews have ever imagined they might be able to prevent Moshe passing away? Rashi tackles this. Rashi deals with us in the language that he uses. After going through all the detail about how this panned out with, Moshe, with, with Noach and the Mabel and with the Jews in Egypt, then he says, Similarly here, which shows that Afkan shows us that there's there's got to be some kind of thread that runs through all three examples. What's the thread? Read the story. Yes, of course their intentions were rebellious, but their strategy was practical. Let's stop Noyach going from here to there. From outside the Teva to inside the Teva. Likewise, let's stop the Jews from going here to there, from inside Mitzrayim to outside Mitzrayim. They had malevolent intentions, but the practical strategy is the theme that runs right through. The Yidden likewise wanted to stop Moshe from going from here to there. What the Jews thought they could do is prevent Moshe from moving, from going up the mountain. Seeing as Hashem had clearly said Moshe is going to die on the mountain, then So they figured if we could prevent Moshe going up the mountain, we prevent him from passing away. So is their intention like the intention of Dura Mabel or the Mitzrim? Definitely not. Furthest thing, they are not rebels, but their strategy is identical. Stop the movement of a person or a group of people from place to place. Now we get why Rashi was satisfied over here just for them to simply to say, we will not allow him to go. Whereas in both the case of Noah and Mitzrayim, he had to explain what their plan was. Here he doesn't have to explain it. When you consider who we're dealing with at the time of the Dur HaMabel or Mitzrayim, bad people. So then, what, what did they know? What information did they know? They knew in the case of Noach that within seven days there's going to be a flood. They knew in the case of Mitzrayim that midnight the Jews are leaving. So as far as they were concerned, bad people. So it wasn't clear that who says that it was going to happen exactly as Hashem said. Maybe Hashem was misleading them. Maybe they didn't deserve to have accurate information. So therefore in their minds, they were afraid. It's not good enough just to say, okay, on day seven, we'll stop Noach from getting into the Teva and then we're safe. At midnight, we'll stop the Jews leaving the tribe and then it can never happen again. Obviously, that wasn't a real consideration. So if they succeeded theoretically, which they couldn't, but if theoretically they would have succeeded, Sasha would have just shifted out the plan. 
So therefore, in their mind, they figured we're going to have to constantly watch that Noach never gets onto that Teva, or we have to constantly watch that the Jews never leave Mitzrayim. This is an impossible task. It's, it's got no end. So therefore, in their minds, they would have to do something that wouldn't just delay the process, but nix the process completely. Let's destroy the Teva. Then there's no way Noach will ever get into the Teva. Or Hergen by him, the Mitzvah wanted to kill the Jews. So there's no way the Jews could ever leave. Whereas the, the Yidden in our story of Moshe Rabbeinu, they didn't have to resort to such dramatic moves. We're talking about Jews who are great people. So they knew that the information they got from Moshe, that today is the day, the day that he fulfilled 120 years on earth, the day that he would pass, they knew that that's accurate information. That's what's going to happen. Today is the day. So in their minds, they thought if we could prevent Moshe from being on the mountain on this day, the day that had been designated for him to leave this world, if we can just get past this date, maybe then the Gezerah will be neutralized. Like Moshe Rabbeinu himself thought. He thought after he was allowed by Hashem to conquer the lands of Sichon and Oik that would become incorporated into Eretz Yisrael. He understood from that that possibly now the nader, the vow that Hashem had made that he would not enter Eretz Yisrael was voided. So you can understand they didn't have to come up with some radical process to ensure Moshe would never climb the mountain. Let's just prevent him. Let's just delay him today. And maybe that way we get to keep him. And that explains why they were pretty convinced in their minds that all they needed was They didn't have to come with a whole elaborate strategy and weaponry and who knows what. Let's just delay it from happening today. So now we see a big difference between the Noach and Mitzrayim scenarios where they wanted to actually break the possibility of the exit of either Noach from the Mabul or the Jews from Mitzrayim and how that's not like the experience of the Jews here where all they needed to do was today is the day Hashem is destined, let's somehow delay the day. Now while we're discussing that, let's understand why in fact Rashi brought two examples both for Noach's crew and for the Mitzrayim. So why, in fact, does Rashi quote two possibilities of what the Mabal people and what the Mitzrim thought that they could do? What did the people of the Mabal notice? They noticed very clearly that Hashem wants to save Noach, and the way to do it is to get him into the Teva. So they figured, if they could break the Teva, which is the escape module for Noyach, then obviously Hashem can't bring the Mabel, right? Because the whole principle of the Mabel is that Noyach and his family could be saved. So if they no longer have their way of being saved, then the Mabel can't come. We'll all be saved. Logically, they realized if they're going to try to break the Teva, Noach is going to prevent them from doing so. 
So Huchrachu Lechapes em Tsoi shall Yodo Yuchlo Shabbos Hateva over Yachad em Zeli Zoshla Yorg Noyachalides. It's such brilliant psychology that the Rebbe reads into the Mabul people. They realized they had to somehow keep Noyach out of the way so he wouldn't be able to prevent them from breaking the Teva, but they can't kill Noyach. Because if they kill Noyach, then there's nobody to save. If there's nobody to save, there's no delay to bring the Mabul. <laughs> the whole logic is that we need to stop Noyach escaping so that he can't bring the Mabul to hurt everybody else because Noyach would be hurt. If they kill Noyach, well, then their immunity is gone. So they had to come up with this process of let's break the Teva and at the same time keep Noyach out of the way. How do we do that? That's why Rashi specifies not only did they bring Kardumo's big axes, which they were going to use to smash down the Teva, but they also had the small hatchets. What, what's the role of the small hatchets? So we already know from a few parashas ago, Parsha Shoftim, where we, just, we learned about how Jews go to war and how there were officers in charge of the different regiments of the army that they had these little hatchets, these iron hatchets in their hands. Anybody who wanted to retreat from the war took the risk of having, you know, getting a bit sliced on, the, uh, on, on his legs. But these are not lethal weapons. You actually see it in the word. Kishilin comes from the word kishlan, which means to weaken, not from to kill. This is something which could obstruct a process without killing the person. That's exactly what the Durham Mabel needed. The Kardumois were to smash down the Teva. The Kishilin were to keep Noach at bay so he wouldn't interfere. Obviously, they can't kill him because that would scuttle their, their plans. So just keep him out of the way and that way they'd hopefully be able to protect themselves. Same applies to Mitzrayim. They also needed a two-point strategy because what are they trying to do? Stop the Jews going out. How do you stop them going out? If need be, they're going to kill them. What do you think? The Jews are not going to fight back. So the Mitzrayim realized that the minute they started to attack Jews, the Jews will come back and fight against them. That's why they didn't just simply get swords, which are lethal weapons. But general weaponry, which would also include things like shields or body armor, to protect themselves for when the Jews would attack. So Rashi is effectively just describing for us the reality of the two scenarios, what the reality of the Mabel prevention scenario was, and what the reality of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim prevention strategy was. Okay, so what do we see? that they had malevolent intention in those generations and they wanted to prevent something over the course of a lengthy period of time. So the only way they could imagine doing it is smash the possibility altogether. We're talking about tzaddikim who believed that there's a gzera for today, that Moshe passes away today. If we could prevent it happening today, then we're good. The question remains, how do they think they could do something against what Hashem wants? Avladayin kosher. Mikol mokem. How did the Jews imagine that they could do anything to prevent Moshe passing away? Whichever way you look at it, it's contrary to what Hashem wants. How could that be? So, 
That's why Rashi continues to say, what was their thinking? This is the person who did so many good things for us. He took us out of Mitzrayim and split the sea, etc. You remember from the beginning of Parshas Kisove, where we learn about Bikurim and Meiser. So we learn the principle that when a person receives brochas, physical brochas from Hashem, a field, a field that produces, so you're not allowed to reject or be ungrateful. And so you have to bring Bikurim, the first fruits, as a sign of your gratitude to Hashem. So now the Jews obviously know this. This was their rejoiner. Considering that Moshe had done so many good things for them, they, based on what they've learned from Bikurim, now have an obligation not to be ungrateful. Which means, not to be ungrateful means do everything in your power to prevent his passing. Even if it goes against the direct instruction from Hashem to Moshe that he's got to go up the mountain. we That's Moshe's business. We have a responsibility to show our gratitude. That's why Rashi couldn't just say, Moshe did one good thing, etc. There's others he did too. He had to give us the details. As the list of good things that Moshe does for the Jews grows, so the extent of their responsibility to show gratitude swells. And that only reinforces for us why they wanted to insist that he doesn't go up the mountain. So now you've got to ask the question, why are these the good things on the list then? Why do they tell this story, the story of how they cannot be kufuyetoyva? Well, now we can actually think, if you think about it, you can actually understand why Rashi listed specifically these favors that Moshe did for them and not others. Any historical favor or goodness that Moshe did for the Jews in the past, if we're going with the thinking, which is that they were not ungrateful, then they must have already shown their gratitude previously. That's why Rashi has to dafka look for things from which they benefited there and then. On the same day that Moshe is going up the mountain, what is the fresh goodness that he's doing for us that we still owe him a debt of gratitude for? It's because of those specific things that now he has to be careful, or, or they have to be careful as a nation, not to be ungrateful. Now, when you look through that list, you might think, but some of those things happened a long time ago, right? That's old news. Ah, you'll say, unlike the food and the drink which they got Obviously, on that day, what about Yetzias Mitzrayim splitting the sea, getting the Torah? Those happened 40 years ago. Right? These are things that happened a long time ago and actually to the previous generation. 
It's not a question. Because those three events have an ongoing impact that benefits every Jew at every time in history, including today. So certainly then. So we know with regards to Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and Kriyas Yamsuf is what concluded Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So we already know the Torah says, One day your child is going to ask you the question. The Torah says, Machar tomorrow, but Rashi says, Any time in the future. What are you going to say to your child who asks these questions? You're going to tell your child, We left Mitzrayim. It doesn't matter where you are in the timeline. You could be in the 21st century and you still say, We left Mitzrayim. Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. It's the same applies to the giving of the Torah. It's not a once upon a time event. It's today. Hayoim. Every single day you have to see that you're receiving the Torah today like the day it was at Har Sinai. That's why Rashi did not use the phrase that the Sifri uses that generically Moshe did for us miracles and powerful things. Because Moshe's Dafka, according to Rashi, sorry, Rashi is Dafka looking for things that occurred to them that day, that they benefited from Moshe that day. Big Nisim, big Gvoros, those were all in the past. So right now they have this feeling that they have to show gratitude to Moshe. And what's the greatest gratitude to say? We are not willing to relinquish him. He can't go. He has to stay. Although you still have to ask yourself the question, Hashem told him, who do you think you are to contradict an instruction from Hashem? No matter how much gratitude you want to show. It's still not clear. There's a direct instruction from Hashem to Moshe to go up the mountain. How could the Jews have justified in their own minds that because they have to show gratitude to Moshe, they could fight a direct instruction from Hashem? Where does that come from? So Rashi answers that in the headline. That's why in his Dibra Maschil, Rashi also quotes the words that it was Hashem speaking to Moshe. You know what he's telling us? That the instruction to go after Har Ha'avorim, to Har Novoi, is an instruction from Hashem to Moshe. It wasn't addressed to the community. They, they, they'd rationalize we were not given this instruction and now if Moshe does not climb the mountain how, why would that happen? against his will because we'd force his hand if something happens that is the Pasuk says you don't do anything to the person who did something against their will they're not, they're not liable for an action that they couldn't control so Moshe's not going to be penalized for this if that's the case, so what would occur is that there'd be an indirect cause 
of circumstantially Moshe not fulfilling what Hashem asked him to do. So in their minds, they understood, look, we have a chiyuv, we have a, a, a doraisa that you have to show gratitude. That's our responsibility. And if we follow that responsibility, there's an indirect groma cause for Moshe Rabbeinu that he'll be against his will, incapable of fulfilling an instruction from Hashem. It's worth it. And now we understand why Rashi didn't, as he did in the case of the Mabul and Mitzrayim, say that Hashem's response was, whoever thought they could interfere, let them come and try. Rather, he says it just indirectly, with an etc. Because because this scenario is completely different to the Mabul and Mitzrayim. They, Dafka, wanted to interfere and go against Hashem. And the Jews at this time certainly did not. In fact, to the contrary, they believed in their minds that they were fulfilling a chiyuv al pitora, not to be ungrateful. If Rashi had specified that Hashem's response is anybody who thinks they can interfere with my plan, let them come forward. That would give the implication that the Jews wantonly rebel against Hashem at this time. And that's not true. That's why Rashi did not want to use that phrase. Whoever believes they can interfere, let them come and interfere. He just says an etc. And you can understand that there is a similar kind of rebellion happening here, but certainly no malevolent intention. Still, is it absolutely clear? Whichever way you want to look at it, the fact is that there is an instruction from Hashem. Agreed, it's to Moshe. But there is an instruction to go up the mountain. How could you tell me that the Jews did not want Moshe to fulfill a mitzvah? Yes, of course they had an agenda. Yes, of course they wanted Moshe to stay. But they also understood that Moshe wants to do what the Abishta says. Were they not sensitive to that? So the explanation is this. In their understanding of what occurred on that day, they understood They understood the fact that Hashem spoke that instruction only to Moshe and did not publicize it to them and that it was an instruction, umus, that was dependent on a clause. You have to first go up the mountain. They interpreted that to mean that the Ebeshter had created a gap that they could use as the loophole to prevent it from happening. The fact that he said, it's only to Moshe. And it's only if he goes up the mountain. They heard in that. So stop him from going up the, up the mountain. That's actually what I want. It's not like, for example, when they didn't want to go fight the war of Midian because they didn't want Moshe Rabbeinu to die. This is more than that. It's almost like an invitation. 
And especially because they interpreted that Moshe would not be liable. He would be considered to have been in a situation not of his own doing, and it'd be completely potter, be off the hook from for any so-called rebellion or ignoring what Hashem had said. That's why they thought they were justified. And of course, at the end of the day, Davishter's plan still overrode their good intentions. Looking at this through the lens of Chsidis, a deeper perspective, we discover this. We know the fact. The fact is that already prior to this, Hashem had decreed that Moshe was going to pass away and not enter Eretz Yisrael. So why did they try? Why did they think they could change Hashem's mind? Because this was now the Jews working as a community to try and prevent Moshe going up the mountain, the reality is that the power of the Tzibur is so great that it can even undo what Hashem has signed and sealed. That's why Rashi doesn't use the expression that he used about the Dor Hamabul or the Mitzrim. See if you think you can interfere. See if you believe you have the power to interfere with my plan. Rashi doesn't say it here. You know why? You know why Rashi doesn't say it? Because we actually do have that Koyach. As a Tzibur, we actually have the power to be able to neutralize Hashem's own plan. Actually, find three different occasions where Moshe, on his own through his tefillahs, was able to reverse a plan that had already been decided. Take, for example, that Moshe's tefillah was able to remove half of the consequence against Aaron's sons, that only two of them passed away. So if Hashem was angry at Aaron and wanted to punish him, and Moshe alone could already mitigate half of that punishment, how much more so could the entire Tzibur mitigate the punishment against Hashem being angered at Moshe Rabbeinu? We find a similar principle with Torah, that Hashem turns around and says, you've beaten me. My children have overwhelmed me. They've, they've been victorious against me. Meaning to say that Hashem empowers us sometimes to overcome his choices or decrees. So why didn't the Jews pull it off? The reason the Jews were unsuccessful in preventing Moshe from passing away is because he needed to pass away for their, in their interest. And that's It's alluded to in the word usage over here where the Pasuk says it was, we translated as broad daylight in the middle of the day, but in the essence of that day. What's alluded to over here, the insinuation is that the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu would pass away at that time was something relevant to the fundamental continuity of the Jewish people. Let's assume that Moshe had taken the Jews into Eretz Israel, which we would love, right? As we well know, anything that Moshe touched became eternal. So going into Eretz Israel under Moshe's leadership would be irreversible. There'd be no capacity for Golos 
ever. And then if would at any point be angry, so to speak, against the hidden and want to mete out some consequence to us, it would be to us, not to the buildings that he could destroy, then send us into Golos. And Al Yisro Gufa Chas V'Shalom, Chas V'Shalom, Hashem's anger could be directed at us. That's why Moshe had to go up the mountain and he had to pass away to protect the same Jews who wished nothing more than to keep him here on earth. Which teaches us a lesson. A lesson in our personal avoidance. Every one of us in the essence of our soul sits a spark of Moshe Rabbeinu, an element of Moshe within our own neshama. The Altreb explains this at length in Tanya. So a person will say, Seeing as what Hashem wants from me is that I should fulfill Torah and mitzvahs. Why then is the Moshe dimension of my soul so hidden? Why don't I see it? Why don't I experience it? In fact, a person could, could actually start to believe that my Moshe dimension is completely inaccessible, completely clouded over, and all I ever experienced is my Nefesh Abahamis. That answer is embedded in this story. It's all with our best uh, interests in mind. It's dafka, the essence of being Jewish, hinges on the fact that the neshama is not automatically revealed. The Moshe dimension is not automatically accessible. Dafka in a situation where we have to really work hard to achieve our spirituality. The fact that we have to battle against our internal spiritual darkness and the external generalized spiritual darkness, that allows us to get in touch with the essence of who we are. In other words, we're not relying on an external inspiration, but we actually discover through our own efforts, we discover the depth of our own being. And then it becomes apparent that all of the darkness and clouding that existed was never for the purpose of darkness. It was always for the purpose of greatness that would follow. It was all designed to allow us the opportunity to reveal the inner Moshe which would redeem us. It would take us from our own personal ex- escape from the spiritual darkness into the greater Geula, the Moshe who gail Rishon, who gail Achram, because Moshe ultimately is both the original and the ultimate redeemer. Moshe be to see gail Rishon, who gail Achram, take off Omiyad Mamash.